Today's reading is Daniel 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what I dreamed and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what was asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, 
No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory in your hands. He has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet, that the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, 
and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a great story. Uh, Some great drama. But what does it have to do with us? Are we supposed to pray that we might have the ability to interpret the dreams of the mayor of Long Beach? Is that what this is saying to us? So what's happening in this text as we heard it read to us today? Well, I'll try to frame this with another story maybe to to get us started on this. Uh, Some years ago, um, our family took a vacation up in the state of Seattle. We went to this place called Suncadia Resort. And on one particular day, all the, the kids and the cousins decided they wanted to go out. It was a beautiful, warm day. It was one of those wonderful Seattle summer days. And, and they wanted to go out on the Cleelum River. And there it is. It's beautiful. And it was glassy. It was calm. And they all wanted to go inner tubing and just have this wonderful, lazy ride down the Cleelum River. And so they got in their inner tubes, and they're all working this out together. And they got out there. And of course, what appears to be glassy and calm on the surface is typically something different underneath the surface, because typically you run into currents, right, in a river? And so they ran into the currents of the Cleelum River, and no matter how much they tried, they kept on being shoved by the currents onto the shore and into the trees. And you could hear their screaming, and I was walking along the side. They would continue to scream and, and talk about how bad of an idea this was and blame each other, and, and then they would get out a little bit, then they would crash into the, into the, uh, into the side again. It was, it was quite funny, actually. Um, but the point of the story is that whether you're tubing or whether you're swimming, you can fight the current until you're worn out, or you can just give in to the current and let it take you along. You can just stop and go with the flow. And this is what this story that we just heard read to us in the book of Daniel is trying to capture. What does it mean to remain faithful to God in a culture where it seems like the currents and the pressures are pushing you to abandon faithfulness to God? This whole book is about the faithfulness of four teenagers. And yes, they're teenagers, ages 13 to 16. But these four teens struggling to live in tension in Babylon, fully engaged in the life and the culture of Babylon, while retaining faithfulness to God in the midst of that culture and living with hope. So why are we exploring this together? Because throughout history, the people of God have found themselves living as a minority in the surrounding culture. The same thing is true today. Christians are a minority living in a culture that surrounds us. And there's always two pressures at work when you find yourselves in a minority in the, in the surrounding culture. And I went over those last week. The first is to separate, and that is to abandon or withdraw from the culture. And the second is to syncretize. And that's like the chameleon that takes on the colors of its surroundings in order to blend in. And so it, that's one of the pressures of, 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 for Christians as well in our culture, to conform Uh, where any distinct identity as a people of God is lost. Faith becomes private and you blend in. Related to that is the temptation, as I suggested last week, the temptation to be relevant. I had a really interesting conversation, a really good conversation with a friend after after I spoke last week. We were talking out in the lobby for some time. And, And we got on to talking about this issue of relevance and and it caused me to think more about it throughout the week as I, as I thought about what, it, what does it mean to be relevant. And I suggested last week that this impulse to be relevant is about, about decreasing, diminishing the difference 
between us and the broader culture. And that's something that, that is one of the temptations for us. It's kind of part of that, that impulse to, to syncretize. And as I reflected on that whole issue of being relevant, what struck me as I look at the church in the West, and I, that's, you know, that's one of my things that I do is to pay attention to what is happening in the church, and I'm speaking about the church in the West. It seems to me that the church in the West seems to think that pursuing relevance as it's defined is its lifeline in a culture that's increasingly turning away from anything that's Christian. And so we, as Christians, tell them, look at how relevant we are. Don't you want to join us? And they say to us, why? We've already assimilated you to Babylon. You just haven't realized it yet. And that's one of the things that I sense is going on in the Western church is this this desire to be relevant and to syncretize to the point that we no longer have anything distinct about us. And so they're just looking at us and they're saying, well, you're just like us. We've already assimilated you to Babylon. And so it's in between these impulses of separation and syncretism where the creative minority is found living in tension. And I gave you a quote last week from Jonathan Sachs, which is, I'm repeating it this week because some of you weren't here last week, because some of you need to understand why we're talking about a creative minority. He writes, this is the chief rabbi, of, former chief rabbi of England. He says, becoming a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. And this comes from an article, an outstanding article and speech he gave titled On Creative Minorities. And so to be a creative minority still today is to live in this tension of neither syncretizing nor separating, but being distinct while being in contact and connection with the culture so as to transform the culture. And that's a difficult challenge. It's difficult to remain faithful to God in a culture that is pressuring us to conform, to assimilate to the thinking and the values and the way of life that we're faced with every day. I think it's important to admit that this is difficult. It's difficult for all of us. As I reflected on this, it seems to me, for me personally, that the moment, one of the indicators for me is this, that the moment that I'm comfortable with Jesus is an indication that I have assimilated to the culture. The moment when I've become comfortable with Jesus means that that's the moment where I'm no longer following him and allowing him to stretch me and to live in this tension between separation and syncretism. And it's at that moment that I've probably made Jesus after my own likeness and I've made him fit in to my cultural dispositions. So that's an indication for me, and you might want to think through those for yourself. What is that like for you? What are the indicators for you? And that's why Daniel is so helpful. That's why we're looking at this book, because it allows us to see examples of some teenagers Teenagers who remain on the razor's edge of faithfulness to God in the midst of a culture that is seeking, is pressuring them to fully conform, to fully assimilate. So last week we saw that they don't separate, they don't withdraw, they receive Babylonian names, they learn the language, they, they, they pick up the fashion, they get government jobs, they're even trained as Babylonian sages. And, and I put this quote up last week from John Goldingay about the Babylonian sages. And, and because the, the word that's used in chapter 1 is Chaldeans, and it refers not just to the Babylonians in general, but to the Chaldean sages. 
And Daniel and his friends were trained for three years in doing this type of thing, being designed to be applied to life by means of astrology, interpreting dreams, the study of sheep livers, other organs, rites of purification, sacrifice, incantation, exorcism, and other forms of divination and magic. I was still trying to wrap my head around that after I said it. You know, you're up here speaking, you're going like, whoa, wait, I need to stop and just pause for a minute. Um, That's amazing. This is what Daniel and his friends were being trained in for three years. And that's what makes sense of what he's going to encounter in chapter 2. And so they were going along with this. They don't separate. They don't withdraw. And they're taking to heart Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 29.7, where he told them before they were going to go into captivity, the people of Israel, that to seek the peace of Babylon... Seek the well-being of Babylon, because as it flourishes, you will flourish. As it prospers, you will prosper. And so as Daniel and his friends are engaging in what they're doing in chapter 1, and you're going to see throughout, this is really their attempt to, to, to bring pros- prospering to the city that they find themselves in. It's a pretty amazing thing to look at. And none of this, interestingly enough, is viewed as, as compromise or unfaithfulness to God. But then there are these moments when some issue emerges that's all about faithfulness to God and swimming against the current. And we're going to see that come up as well. And so the question is, how do we know those moments? How do we live in that tension? Because to be a creative minority is to live in this tension and to have the wisdom to know when these moments are where we swim against the current. We don't just go along with the culture. We stand out from the culture. And Daniel helps us in this. So the question I want to pose for you this morning as we look at this text is, what might motivate a person or a group to swim against the current, to sustain faithfulness to God? Especially when everyone thinks that you're stupid for being a Christian in our culture. Uh, They think you're crazy for for living distinctly as as a Christian. Why swim against the current? What will sustain a person to be faithful to God and to swim against the current throughout their life? And Daniel 2 is all about answering this. And it's about a vision of hope that empowers Daniel's faithfulness. So here's my approach today. So if you're wondering if I'm going to go through all 49 verses again, no, I'm not going to. That's why you heard it read. You've already heard the story. And I want to fill in some details along the way to be answering this question. What is this vision of hope that fuels our living as a creative minority? What is this vision of hope that fuels our living as a creative minority? So turn on your Bible or open up your Bible. There's a blue one uh, sitting underneath your seat. It's uh, page 737 in those blue Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want to say this. This is real history. Okay? This is not just some kind of a myth. This is real history. I want to show you an image here. Right there. This first image is from a a group of um, artifacts called the Babylonian Chronicles. This particular artifact right here is called the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle. It's written in Akkadian, and it basically chronicles the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of a city of Yehuda, is how it reads, probably a reference to Jerusalem, and his conquest in 597 B.C., It mentions two kings of Israel, one that he conquered and one that he put in place, both which are found in the Bible. So, did Nebuchadnezzar exist? 
this is one of his, um, this is how they recorded their history. And so this is, this is the Babylonian chronicle. The next image is what I call the Nebuchadnezzar brick. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's name is written in there. And of course, I can't read Akkadian and neither can you. So you have to trust that it's, I'm not just making this up. Um, but you can go on the internet and see for yourself. It was common for emperors to have great building projects because that's how they paid tribute to their greatness. And it was very common for them also to inscribe their names in the bricks as part of the tribute. So as people came by the building, it would be like me walking behind, you encountering buildings throughout Long Beach, and you saw Lou Huseman's name stamped in all the bricks. And you would think, he is a great person. He's built this entire city for us. And that's the way it rolled there in the ancient Near East. And so this is another uh, piece of history, and this one particularly speaks, uh, has Nebuchadnezzar II's name in it. Okay, so it's real history. Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar wakes up agitated after a restless night of dreaming. That's the crisis of the story. And in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, there's a high likelihood that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the details of his dream, and he was agitated by that. And the question is, why? Why? Well, according to Eastern superstition, it was ominous not to be able to remember a dream. Here's a quote from A. Leo Oppenheim, his book on the interpretation of dreams in the ancient Near East with a translation of an Assyrian dream book. That is available, by the way, in PDF on the Internet. It's about 200-something pages. It makes for some great reading. I started to read it. And I thought, oh man, this is just, this is a nerd out fest right now. I just, you know, reading us about Assyrian, Egyptian, and biblical dreams. But in this, there's this quote, if a man cannot remember the dream he saw, it means his personal God is angry with him. That's, a, that's an Eastern quote. So if you can't remember your dream as royalty, then it means your God is angry with you. And so he issues an ultimatum to his dream specialist to interpret Now, again, a little bit of background, I've given you the title of this. It talks about Assyrian dream books. There were these, what existed in this culture were dream books or dream manuals. Okay, and that's why it's important to understand history because then it makes sense of the text, it helps to make sense of the text that we're reading. And these dream manuals or dream books were based on the principle that Dreams followed empirical laws. So they consisted of, of historical dreams and then the events, the historical events that followed those dreams. And this, again, this had to do with royalty. So, for example, let's say that I'm a king and I'm troubled by a dream that I had last night of clowns. Had, some, had something with clowns in it. We've had a lot of clowns in the news, so let's say I have a dream of clowns. And then then the, the historical piece that follows is that someone has a surprise birthday party for me and everybody dresses up as clowns, all right? Everybody's looking at me like, that is so weird. It is weird. What are your dreams like, you know? So what they would do is they would write this down and then let's say some king down the line had a dream about clowns. They would look up clowns they would find out that at some point some other guy had, some other king had a dream of clowns, and he ended up having a surprise birthday party afterwards. So they would tell him, most likely what's going to happen in your future is that you're going to experience a surprise birthday party. So that's how this worked. 
So obviously, they had to chronicle all these dreams, and so these books were huge, and they, they required expertise to navigate through these in order to interpret these dreams because they had to cover every possible eventuality. But you still had to begin with the content. You still had to begin with the data of the dream. And you see, that's why this is a problem here. He can't remember. And he's calling upon his dream experts to come in and interpret this dream, and they don't have the data. They don't have the, the, the content of it. And so he threatens them because he's frustrated. And they come to him in verses 7 to 9 with a second request. And he issues an ultimatum in verses 10 to 11. Look at the words that are used. I don't know if it struck you when they were reading it. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. You hear the history there? We've had a history of doing this stuff. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're forced to admit that they don't have access to the gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar orders the execution of all the sages. Daniel hears about it. In verses 16 to 18, he goes to the king to ask for time. And he asks for his friends to pray for revelation in verse 18 so that both Daniel and his friends and all the other Babylonian sages might be spared. I found that interesting as I, as I heard that being read again was that Daniel is not just saying, oh, here's my great chance. I'm going to step up to the plate. I'm going to do this interpretation. And I'm going to let all the rest of these Babylonian people be executed. It's my chance to rise to the top of the pile. I've always wanted to accomplish this in Babylon. He didn't. He was seeking the welfare of the city. He was seeking the welfare of even the other Babylonian sages with whom he had contact. And so in verse 19, God answers the prayer. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel sings praise to God. Look at the text. Do you see it? It's kind of set off from the margin. Is that, do you see that in your Bible? Look, does that, anybody see, have that in their Bible? Yes? Yes? Okay. That's a poem. And as poetry, it's designed to slow down the reader and cause you to pay attention. So it's designed for you to, to read that and to slowly take in what is being said. So Daniel is essentially creating his own musical response to, to this event. And what does Daniel sing about? He sings about the king who is ultimately the king of history. Who is ultimately the king of history? And Nebuchadnezzar is king, but he's with limits. He's not king of the world. And Daniel says in this poem that God, the God of Israel, is the world's true king. He is responsible for Nebuchadnezzar coming onto the stage, and he's responsible for Nebuchadnezzar leaving the stage of history. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So then Daniel asks for an audience in verses 26 to 28. And he proceeds to describe the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And here's an image I found on the internet. I love that. That is so campy, but it's so awesome. <laughs> it's just so weird. Uh, the statue of made, is made of various materials with Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, which I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar went like, at least I'm the head, at least I'm the top, top person. But what is interesting is it talks about other world empires to follow, and, and Daniel interprets that and he tells about that. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is great, but he is finite and he is limited. He's the head of gold, but there will be other empires. Now, here's the piece that you may miss 
in your reading of it or your listening to it. That would have been unsettling to Nebuchadnezzar. And you know why? Because to this point, there had only been two other great empires in Mesopotamia, Egypt and Assyria. So you have Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, and Daniel is talking about empires, empires to come. There was no, no one on the horizon in view that could have been this. That's unsettling. And finally, this boulder crushes the feet of clay and iron. The whole statue shatters. It's blown away like dust in the wind. Cue the music. No wonder he is terrified. No wonder he is terrified. Because he's the most powerful man on earth. And if the news of this dream and its interpretation got out, some of his enemies might decide to help this dream along and overthrow Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. So you see, there's a lot of drama going on in this. And Daniel says in verse 44, look at the text with me. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. What happens? Nebuchadnezzar then admits that Daniel's God is superior to all the other gods. Verse 47, he promotes Daniel in verse 48, and then he grants the request that Daniel has to put his friends in better places, better positions, and he does that in verse 49. End of story. Okay, so here's the question. Next five minutes left, all right? How is this a vision of hope? Remember the question I posed to you? What is it that can sustain the creative minority, the people of God, to live as a creative minority? And I suggested it's having a vision of hope. So how is this a vision of hope? Well, certainly it's a picture of the human story gone wrong. It's about the age-old story of human ambition and the tendency to be corrupted by power as we seek to exercise authority as image bearers outside of God's authority. It's about the tendency to seek the well-being of me and my group at the expense of you and your group. And human history is about God's images in the world, namely humanity. I'm not limiting that to Christians because everyone is made in the image of God. Human history is about God's images in the world turning away from him to exercise authority apart from living under the authority of God. That is the human problem. And when that happens, there's exaltation of self. There's the exaltation of power over others. The narrative of scarcity that drives us to say, I've got to get mine at the expense of you. And that's the world we live in. But Daniel's story comes to us and it tells us that this is all an illusion. That the power and the permanence of leaders and governments and nations is an illusion. It's a very dangerous thing to ground your identity and your hope in human leaders, governments, and nations. Because to do that is to locate your identity in something that, while it is important, is not the foundation of the identity of the people of God. The identity of the people of God is God who has revealed himself to us in the pages of his word and most more fully in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who walked among us 
And he's revealed to us what he is about in the world as he sent Jesus into the world announcing his kingdom, his kingdom that is a permanent kingdom. So here's how this helps us as, the, as a creative minority. When you know something is temporary, it makes it easier to resist. When you know something is temporary, it makes it easier to resist. For example, fashion. Fashion. One of the fashion pieces right now are younger men wearing rather long black socks with shorts. Now, when I was a teenager, my dad, during the summer, wore shorts, and he had these translucent white legs, and he wore dress shoes and black socks. And I was like, oh, how could this be my dad? And so when we go on family vacations, I'd wait to, like, you know, I'd make sure there's, he would get in the car first, and I'd go running into the car, diving in the car. So if anybody saw the two of us were attached, they, they may not, you know, it may not stick with them for the rest of their lives, even though I, you know, who's going to care? But that was, so, that was so embarrassing to me to have my dad wearing these long black dress socks. And now I'm walking down the street, and these dudes are all wearing long black dress socks with, their, with you know, shorts and stuff, and that is a fashion statement. Now, because I know that's temporary, I know it's easy to resist. <laughs> you won't see me doing that. And it's true for so much of the fashion stuff, haircuts and all that kind of stuff. You're like, oh, just wait 20 years and some of your kids are going to be pulling out a picture of you and laughing at you for that, you know, those, those, those high school graduation photos. Everybody laughs at them. So when you know something is temporary, it makes it easier to resist. And Daniel 2 is saying that this is true of human kingdoms. They are all temporary. Even the United States of America. But God's kingdom is permanent and has become a reality in Jesus who came announcing its arrival in Mark 1, 14 and 15. And when you observe Jesus, you see what God's kingdom is like. That's why it's so important in the midst of all the talk about empires and kingdoms that go along at a political season that it's good to refresh yourself in Jesus' kingdom. To know what Jesus' kingdom looks like because in Jesus we see what God's kingdom looks like. And it's not about dominating with power. It's not about selfishness. It's not about promising prosperity at the expense of everyone else but it's self-giving love. And self-giving love that goes so far as to let humanity's evil crush him on a cross so that evil might be crushed. And because of that, because of that kingdom that is in play right now, Jesus can give you and me and us the ability to live against the current. To live as people who reveal what his kingdom is all about. And you know what, friends? Our world desperately needs that news. Let's pray together. Father, I ask, we ask, may your kingdom come May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
And may we as your people be people who find our identity in you and what you've revealed about yourself and what you've revealed about human history. And I ask that you would begin to give us the ability as a group of people to live as a creative minority, fully engaged in this world as it is, seeking to bring flourishing to it, but at the same time, living as distinct citizens of your kingdom. Grant us through your spirit the wisdom collectively to be able to do that in the days ahead. In your name we pray, amen.